Welcome to our podcast series on child well-being with Professor Daryl Higgins from Australian Catholic University. In this series, we explore the mental health of young Australians and how parents can help their children during difficult times. Welcome to the second podcast in the Child Wellbeing series with Daryl Higgins, Director of Australian Catholic University's Institute of Child Protection Studies. Daryl is also a key researcher for the Parenting and Family Research Alliance. Today we're talking about parenting interventions to address mental health issues in children. Welcome back, Daryl. Thanks for having me, David. It's a pleasure. Last time we spoke about parents needing quicker and more improved access to evidence-based support programs to address the rising mental health problems in children, partly due to COVID-19. Now, the majority of mental health problems have their origins in childhood and adolescence. Why is that exactly? Well, David, I think we have to understand what the um, developmental tasks and journeys are for children and young people and for parents in guiding and supporting them through that to understand where things might have the potential to kind of go astray. Um, So we know that um, adolescence is one of those really critical um, timelines. And of course, some of the more severe mental illnesses start to have their origins and emerge, if you like, um, in that period of of transitioning into adolescence. Um, So many of the, um, uh, you know, serious mood disorders and psychoses and so forth, we'll often start to see that. But of course, behavioural problems which could be the precursor of later adult um, mental health issues um, can be occurring at any stage during childhood. And we know that the interventions that we have, particularly the kind of ones that we were talking about last time, um, around helping adults, helping parents and carers to support um, things like good emotional self-regulation, Um, That's really important right throughout the um, period of of childhood and adolescence. Of course, the the nature of the the intervention or the parenting strategy that you might want to be deploying is very different when you're talking about, um, you know, soothing an infant that's crying um, compared to dealing with a a tantrum from a a child or a... um, you know, behavioural um, dysregulation or, or what we might call a conduct disorder um, in an adolescent. Um, you know, very different different types of challenges and need different responses. And therefore, there are a variety of different kind of parenting um, supports and structured programs as well that um, that address those. But you're right, they, they really are trying to um, focus on the points where things could go wrong and where greater um, interventions or different types of parenting environments are needed. Right. And, and the problem's getting worse, isn't it? I mean, it's just not COVID. I think there's evidence that uh, mental health issues in children and adolescents have been slowly declining for quite a while. Well, I think we have um, only some data on that. Um, you know, we, we do have now a national um, uh survey that looks at um, children and adolescents' mental health issues. And so I think as we look at that tracking over time, we'll be able to see, um, you know, population-wise, is that changing? Um, I don't think we have good data from, you know, many decades ago, um, but certainly there's cause for concern and there's um, real evidence to show that there's opportunities for improving 
the, um, the family environments and the skills of parents and carers to be able to respond to some of these challenges. And certainly if you look at the pointy end and you look at the, the need for um, services like um, you know, Headspace and Kids Helpline, they report significant increases in demand, not just during COVID, but in recent years as well. And, um, and they're dealing, of course, with a range of um, severities from um, you know, concerns that a child might have about their mental health and wellbeing, about their, um, their identity or sexuality that they feel as though they can't talk to parents or can't talk to um, uh, you know, their, their school friends or to um, teachers and others in their environment about through to um, concerns about self-harm and suicidal um, thoughts and behaviours. Um, and so that whole range of mental health concerns is often what the, um, uh, the kind of providers, particularly online and uh, call centres like um, Kids Helpline and uh, Headspace are, are, are responding to. Right. How young are we talking about? I mean, I think you, you might have mentioned it in the last podcast, but some of the, the issues affecting uh, children, we're talking about really young kids, aren't we? That's right. Um, you know, but often we miss out on seeing the signs um, if we don't have a good understanding of what, you know, typical, average, normal kind of developmental stages are and where things might be going wrong. Um, certainly um, in the school systems, we see um, a, a, an increase in the number of teachers reporting what we would call, you know, emotional dysregulation. So that difficulty that children have in being able to manage their emotions and uh, behave in appropriate ways with, um, with other children and young people um, in a classroom setting. Um, and that's certainly a big challenge that, um, that school systems have to deal with. And one area of research that I've been involved with um, lately is looking at um, children who are engaging in harmful sexual behaviours with each other. And of course, you know, that's a real challenge for not only parents, but um, school systems to be able to look at that extreme end, if you like, of the um, mental health spectrum of uh, children who are um, engaging in harmful behaviours um, towards others. Right. And as we've seen, uh, social media has its benefits, but uh, uh, with smartphones and other things, it can lead to all sorts of problems too with young people as well these days. That's right. And, and often that's an area where parents feel ill-equipped, um, especially if they didn't themselves grow up in the digital age. Of course, we've now got um, a, a generation coming through where the parents themselves um, you know, kind of did grow up on um, mobile phones and um, uh, electronic devices. And so I think that will start to shift. But the, the generation that's kind of coming through at the moment, it's kind of uh, the first time where we've got this real generational divide where parents weren't um, uh, living their lives on phones at the time that they were children. So they can't kind of draw on their own um, experience. And, and that is a bit of a myth, if you like, in, in parenting that, you know, we naturally know how to parent and we draw on what um, we had around us. And that can be okay. Um, but sometimes it's not enough. You know, sometimes we need some extra support and being able to learn from others, um, share our experiences and see what the research evidence says um, about effective ways to um, respond to challenges that might be emerging is really important. And I think that the digital divide and particularly digital safety 
for children and young people is a really critical one. And I'd encourage any listeners to go and look at the Office of the E-Safety Commission. There are some great resources there um, for parents and for a whole range of, of others around how to keep children safe online. Yeah. There seems to me a lot of educational programs around those issues in schools and elsewhere. Do you think enough is done in that area to uh, to educate children about the dangers of uh, uh, the, the devices and what they do with photos and videos and so forth? Uh, no, I don't think there is. And I think one of the reasons why I don't think there's enough is because it hasn't yet um, permeated through to um, parents in the broader community as you would hope it would. Um, and I think that it's problematic if we put all of our resources into teaching kids what to do, if in fact we're not actually supporting their parents and teaching them about the risks, but more importantly, about the frameworks that they can put in place, um, you know, in their home and for their devices, whether it be simple things like um, installing, um, uh, you know, appropriate filters and uh, other kind of safety um, mechanisms that can be done from a technological point of view, but more importantly, having the discussion. Um, you know, and this is what children and young people say, that if, if parents don't create the environment where it's okay to talk about it, if they were to have an inappropriate image pop up on their screen, or if they had a friend share something that they felt uncomfortable about, or if they themselves are engaging in sharing images and are now regretting that or feeling uncomfortable about it, or don't even know that it could have a, a, a potential risk, they're not going to be talking about it if parents aren't creating the environment in which it's okay to speak up. And I think that's a real challenge for some parents who come from more socially conservative or religious backgrounds where they think that, um, you know, some things are out of bounds, some things are inappropriate, and therefore they're not spoken about. Um, and that's not going to happen to my child. And the data just shows that that's not true, that that's naive and that it's um, relinquishing parental responsibility where we have to have these conversations and have to uh, encourage children and young people to be able to share where they're at, the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah, I mean, a lot, like a lot of things, it starts from the home, doesn't it? And you've got to encourage your children to speak up, even if it's an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah, yeah. And we've got to learn not to make it an uncomfortable conversation. And the way to do that is to keep having the conversation. So practicing it ourselves as adults um, and making sure that um, we don't communicate the idea that this topic is shameful and out of bounds and is causing us distress. So that's why, you know, the, the, the task of parenting is largely about working on yourself, not necessarily about, um, you know, what you do with your children. That's the kind of secondary um, impact. But it's really about learning how to, you know, for a start, manage your own emotions, you know, and if we're feeling uncomfortable or distressed by something, let's get some help and work on that. Mm. Yeah, I get the impression that younger people, uh, and it might be a slight exaggeration, but seem to be better at communicating than they were when I was growing up. Um, there were some things I would never have spoken to my parents about, but uh, my kids, for example, are, are very honest and open about a whole lot of things, which is great. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I think that it is a bit of a generational shift, but there's, um, you know, probably there's a, there's a lot of families that, um, you know, are, are not as um, uh, well adapted to those kind of conversations um, as it sounds like yours was, David. And so that's how we have to try and, you know, shift the dial and really encourage open um, conversations. Sure. Daryl, what else contributes to issues around childhood 
and adolescents' mental health? Yeah, well, I, you know, as I said before, I, I think it's the um, interaction between biology and the environment. And there's only some things about biology that we can change, you know. There are some mental health or disorders that do require medical um, intervention. Usually it's medical intervention in addition to psychological intervention. But largely it's around the environmental um, uh, things that we can change. So, um, you know, if children are having difficulty managing their emotions, then how we create calm environments and support and model good um, emotional regulation practices, you know, so that that being calm, being able to um, help verbalise, so rather than thrashing out and being aggressive with, you know, one of their peers or their siblings or whatever, being able to help a child put it into words. It sounds like you're really frustrated with, you know, not being able to um, play with your toy when you want to or not being able to have the ice cream without eating your dinner, etc. Um, you know, so being able to frame and put into words and um, encouraging um, children and young people to be able to identify those tough feelings. And that can be about, you know, those simple things. When I say simple things like, you know, food, often that is the kind of things that um, yeah. families end up um, having enormous fights over through to those really um, more complex and sensitive issues, um, uh, you know, such as um, sexuality and even things like gender identity. We know that children can be really struggling about things. And if parents are not talking about it, and uh, are dismissive if um, things come up, then children are going to find it really difficult to be able to say what's on their mind, even if they, uh, you know, and often they're not able to put it into words because they're, they're not in an environment where they even see these topics being discussed. So I think it's two levels. We have to, you know, kind of give children the language. We have to model the kind of conversations um, that we want to have. But most importantly, we want to, you know, create calm and stable environments. And I've got to say, one of the biggest challenges to that is the pervasive nature of family violence. And of course, that's an environment that is really toxic for children's well-being. Um, and so it's very hard, hard to kind of work on other aspects of um, child well-being if children continue to be exposed to um, to family violence. And I think that that's a real kind of crisis issue that we're trying to grapple with in Australia at the moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is certainly a problem. And uh, you, you mentioned gender identity. That was sort of something that we didn't even hear about or know about back in the 60s and 70s, but it's uh, so common now, uh, and, and which is a good thing. People are talking about it. But, um, yeah, it just wasn't around when I was young. We'd, never heard of it but now that's something else that parents and families have to grapple with yeah well we recognize now that you know gender and sexuality are not simple binaries and they're also not something that it's easy to just put in the um you know the we don't talk about it basket and assume that everybody is heterosexual or that everybody identifies with the gender that they were assigned at birth and even for those that clearly weren't, you know, we, we know that there are children that are born with, um, you know, physical characteristics of both male and female. And we had very intensive medical interventions to try and fix them up and make them very clearly male or female to avoid this kind of um, dilemma. And so I think as a society, we're, we're moving on. Um, but it's challenging for, you know, for many parents to even, uh, you know, open up that conversation. And of course, we have such a gender stereotyped 
um, society where we have toys that are clearly labelled as, you know, being suitable for one gender and not for another. We have clothes that are labelled as suitable for one gender and not for another. And so if you happen to not particular, particularly identify with the, um, the look and feel or the enjoy the activities that you're supposed to enjoy, it can make it very hard for you to kind of feel like you're okay. And that's the main job of parents is to communicate to children, you are okay. And so if we, we aren't able to open up that conversation, um, that's a real um, gap that we're, that we're missing out on. Mm. Is communication the main point you, when you're talking about families and what they can do for their children around these issues? Does it, does it really solely all rest on communication? Well, I think that that's the, the main platform. You know, communication is then the vehicle for delivering some of these other, you know, whether we call them interventions or strategies, you know, changed parenting practices, the mechanism for that is communication. You know, if you're going to set boundaries, you know, it could be that you've you've had a, a, a child kind of graduating into adolescence and you've not changed your, you know, your rules or your parenting practices, being able to adjust those, which means loosening some boundaries, but perhaps putting new ones in place, like we were talking before around the issue of um, e-safety and, um, you know, the, the, the kind of guidelines that parents need to be providing around online safety. Um, that involves communication. Daryl, when it comes to uh, mental health issues, does family income play a part? Yes and no. Look, I, I, I think it's tricky to have um, a, a simple answer around the issue of um, uh, socioeconomic status, if you like. Um, we know that it's a real challenge for parents to be able to provide safe and supportive environments if they are living in economic disadvantage. So that's absolutely the case. Does that mean that every parent that's poor can't do a good job of parenting and automatically their child is going to be showing signs of mental disorders? No. Um, are there mental disorders in um, families who are rich and well off? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's not a simple answer. But we do know that one of the things that makes it that's a sort of a necessary condition to, um, you know, to enable good mental health is to have access to adequate resources, whether you're talking about, um, you know, housing and shelter, or whether you're talking about, you know, food, healthy food, um, but also access to, um, you know, appropriate and, and healthy uh, recreation. So, you know, there was a report out today in the conversation talking about an index of, of healthy environments um, that had been calculated for New Zealand. And, you know, two of the things that they talk about was access to things like, you know, outdoor spaces like parks, um, so green zones, if you like, and then blue zones. So access to uh, whether it be, you know, beaches or lakes or rivers or, um, you know, outdoor pools, that kind of thing. So being able to, you know, swim and just enjoy the amenities of water. So, you know, we know that all of those things contribute to um, mental well-being for adults, but they also contribute to mental well-being for children. And so structurally, if we're denying or making it really hard for a proportion of society to access those, then it's not surprising that they would have additional struggles in maintaining um, the mental health and well-being of all family members. Right. 
Now, I've spoken to other guests about the importance of having a positive mindset, but I imagine with children that can be problematic at times, especially if they're traumatised, their parents are going through an ugly divorce, or as you mentioned before, they're uh, in a family home where there's domestic violence. Uh, that, that's particularly difficult, I imagine. That's right, and I think it's a balance that in some ways you do have to have a level of honesty and openness with children, but depending on their developmental age, and of course the conversations you would have with someone in you know, late adolescence is very different to the conversations you'd be wanting to having to uh, you know, a preschool or an early primary school age child. But regardless, the main message is that you do need to be able to reassure children that you understand them and that you will do your best to keep them safe. That's the main thing that they need to hear. Um, and then that gives them the confidence to be able to speak up about when they might not be feeling safe or they might be experiencing a risk or, um, you know, some challenges going on. You know, it could be bullying at school. It could be, you know, online harassment, as we were talking about before. Um, all of those things we need to be able to, you know, foster good communication in order to be able to put that up. But I don't think that means that we have to be saccharine and we don't have to be um, dishonest about our own state but it's a it's getting the help that we need as adults to be able to still be child focused and present for them and if our own emotional turmoil is such that we're not able to have you know a reasonable level of positivity and be able to be child focused then that's a sign that you know, we need some help, you know, that we're in a space that we deserve support in order to be able to get our own mental health and well-being on track in order to be there for somebody else. It's a little bit, you know, like the analogy of, um, you know, riding in the aeroplane and if you need to use the oxygen mask, you've got to put your own on first before mm -hmm. you put it on a child. Um, sure. and, and we need to be able to think in that way. We have to have self-care as well as looking out for um, our children. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point and a good analogy, actually. Uh, thankfully, I've never had to use an oxygen mask in an airplane, so hopefully I never will either. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, now, Daryl, it's not always possible for a variety of reasons, but studies I've seen claim it's better if both parents are involved in their child's development and if they've got mental health issues. Uh, you know, a lot of single parents these days, and it's just one of those situations. But is that true if you've, you've got both parents there dancing to the same drumbeat, if I can put it that way, then that's a, a better outcome? Yeah, there's been lots of research showing that. Um, I, I think, though, that we have to um, be careful about um, making assumptions about families, that um, two parents can be involved when they live in the same house and parent together in a typical nuclear family. Yeah. Two parents can also be involved when they share across two households. And, of course, we've had a major shift in the family law system with the introduction in um, uh, 2009, I think it was, of the concept of shared parental responsibility. Um, and so even the concept of single parent is, to my mind, a little bit outdated. You know, it might be that you are living on your own in your house, spending time with children, but... Hopefully, they're also spending time with the other parent. Of course, there would be circumstances where that's not appropriate, such as family violence, and we absolutely want to keep children safe from those inappropriate um, uh, circumstances. But in most um, post-separation parenting um, uh, situations, there's a level of um, engagement of both parents that it's encouraged by the court, 
Um, and uh, I've been involved in longitudinal research to look at the um, well-being of, of children in the Growing Up in Australia study that, um, that I was responsible for in my previous role at the Australian Institute of Family Studies. And we certainly know that children um, do better when there's active involvement and where there's positive parenting um, from both parents, yeah. whether it's across two households or whether it's in one. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, Daryl, we're uh, nearly at the end of uh, our time, allocated time. Just to recap some of the main points, you think, from uh, this podcast? Yeah, look, I think the, the, um, the critical issue is to remember that um, mental health um, concerns can arise at any stage during a, a child or adolescence development. So don't ignore the kind of concerns that you might be seeing and just assume that um, they're going to grow out of this. It's fine to reach out and go to a, a trusted website like um, uh, the Raising Children Network, which is a fantastic source of um, evidence-informed um, advice directed at parents. And you can look up a whole range of topics, including the one we were just talking about before in terms of e-safety. Um, I think that conversation we had around the centrality of communication is really important. Communication about the regular things, communication about the things that um, we maybe didn't communicate about as uh, when we were children um, being parented. Um, so having those um, potentially tough or challenging conversations um, around sex, sexuality, gender, um, identity um, and safety um, in online environments. But more generally, having the building the capacity of children to be able to understand their own emotions and to be able to communicate when um, uh, they're feeling great and when they're not and being able to respond to that. And finally, getting help for yourself and getting support to be able to adapt and change your parenting strategies and skills as, as children um, uh, get older and also as different challenges emerge and you might need additional types of support. Don't, uh, don't do this on your own. There's plenty of people who, um, who can support you. Yeah, and there is a lot of support around these days, unlike when I was growing up. Uh, we, we were so much more aware of these uh, issues now, which, which is a good thing. So, you know, as you said, if families need support, there are places they can go. Absolutely. Daryl, been great talking to you again. Thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thanks, David.